So tonight I'll be talking about anatta, or the impersonal, insubstantial, or not-self nature of experience. This is the third of the three characteristics. Um, I want to just share a little story in the beginning here, and it's about the putting together of this talk. Because I know sometimes when you know, there's talks on anatta, it's... Um, it's a test for the conceptual mind, <laughs> and it can be a real struggle. Um, and sometimes people are fearful, and it, there can be a lot of spin-out from a talk like this. But where this talk led me was quite interesting. You know, as in talks that I prepare, they really kind of work through my system, work through my body, and you know, for the time before, really just looking at whatever it is I'm speaking about. And then I noticed by about lunchtime today that there was coming such a delight and amusement with this. And you know, it was just little things like someone told me that, well, we were talking about how cold it's getting. And and they said, oh yeah, yesterday I went for a walk, but it was too cold. I couldn't do it. I turned back. And my mind immediately went, I did it. You know, and I just saw there was this great arising of I. And, you know, and, and what I loved was that you know, so many times there's that conceit in the mind, and it's like, ooh, gruesome. But this was just like, oh, there it is again. Here I am. And then as I was walking home after my walk today, and I was walking alone, there was just this inquiry into what was being identified with I in that moment. And so there was just this looking, and then suddenly I noticed there was this really strong interest, and there was just this big grin on my face. And so my hope tonight is that should you have any repercussions from this talk, it can be a joyful delight into the inquiry or the investigation of who this sense of I is. I'd like to remind us again that the Buddha was a practical teacher. And so in speaking about this characteristic, he wanted to point to something that would be helpful in the alleviation of the suffering we experience in life. That in speaking about the not-self aspect of experiences, he's not speaking on a metaphysical level. He's pointing to a relationship that we often get entangled in with this mind and body that is not helpful, is not skillful, and does not accurately accurately reflect the way of things. And so, you know, he there was once even a monk named Malaya Paguna. And he once asked the Buddha, who is it that makes contact? Who is it that feels? 
Who is it that craves? Who clings? And the Buddha responded, or part of his response was, this is not a valid question. So we're not looking at this to decide whether there really is a self or not. What we're looking towards is what we in our experiences call self and as a result there is pain, there is struggle, there is suffering. One of the things that we see when we begin to investigate for ourselves what we call self is that it's always changing, that there is this continual array of changing experiences, and that the word self in itself, the way it's used in our culture, is pointing towards something that's more solid. It's more of a noun. And the experience of self is actually more like a verb because it's always changing, continually changing. But there is this sense of ownership. There is, we can see, how we're continually trying to own that which arises. And out of that ownership comes the sense of I, me, or mine. I'd like to share a story about the Sufi mystic uh, Mullah Nasruddin. And one day Nasruddin was walking past a well, and then he had this great impulse to look into it. It was nighttime, and he peered into the deep water. He saw the moon's reflection there. And he thought, I must save the moon, otherwise she will never wane, and the fasting month of Ramadan will never come to an end. So he found a rope, he threw it in, and he called down, Hold on tight, keep bright, help is at hand. And the rope, ca- the rope caught in a rock inside the well, and Nasruddin heaved in ha- as hard as he could, and he was straining and, and pulling back, and suddenly he felt the rope give as it came loose, and he was thrown on his back. As he lay there panting, he saw the moon riding in the sky above, and he said, Glad to be of service. Just as well I came along, wasn't it? In our experiences, we take ownership. You know, we own, you know, my body, my thoughts, my mind, my life, my family. On and on and on it goes. Mine, mine, mine. And we get possessive around this sense of ownership. And it, look in your lives to watch some of the ways that it plays out. I was sitting in a restaurant one day. It was breakfast time. I was sitting alone. And there was a group of people 
sitting at a table beside me, and it was a business meeting. And so, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm eating, and then I'm hearing something of their conversation, and they were quite close, so, you know, it was quite loud. And, you know, just listening, listening. And then, all of a sudden, I started to notice that I was starting to have opinions about what they were saying. You know, and it had really nothing at all to do with me. But this, you know, possessiveness, this I had wanted to, to step in. Um, and, you know, we just see this when we pay attention. We start to see with this sense of I that we also want to improve upon. We want to, you know, we have a real sense of how this I appears to the world. And it becomes great suffering. We really find that when we look at I, it is looking at suffering. And where it takes root is where greed, hatred, and delusion is fed, nurtured. That the, the, this sense of I, this sense of becoming, this sense of taking ownership, really ties in with the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, I want, I want to get, getting, um, or reinforcing, projecting, wanting this great sense of I. You know, coming from the, the force of greed, aversion, not wanting, wanting to protect, wanting to get rid of that which doesn't foster a wonderful sense of I. And this I, because it is full of views and opinions, doesn't lend itself to clear seeing. It breeds delusion. And so the Buddha really called us to look into this I, this sense of self that's wanting to assert it, and to see what's happening there. When we begin to do this, we really start to see identification. There's some experience and identification happens. And this becomes painful. This is from a Thai forest monk, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He says, It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth and death are suffering. But birth is not suffering, aging is not suffering, death is not suffering, where there is not attachment to my birth, my aging, and my death. At the moment we are grasping at birth, aging, pain, and death as ours, but if we don't grasp, they are not suffering. They are only bodily changes.
but our sense of self is often based upon an unchanging reference point. And, you know, it comes from our wanting solidity, wanting something to be solid. And so this is one of the ways it starts to, this desire starts to try to find something more solid, more stable. And so the self starts to become one, you know, can at times be someone to whom all these experiences are happening? It can be identification with the body, can be identification with personality or habituated patterns of behavior. And out of it, we come out with this sense, I am. Venerable Analeo, who is a German monk, who wrote quite a wonderful book about the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he was speaking about how um, there are the five aggregates of experience that the, book, the Buddha spoke about, you know, the, the aggregate of material form, of uh, feeling tone of experience, of perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and that how these are what our experience is comprised of, and this is what we take to be self. And I'll speak a little bit more later on about this. But in this sense of I am, Venerable Anna Leo broke this down in a quite a wonderful way of how, you know, what happens through the identification with each of these aspects of experience. He says, these five aggregates are experienced as embodiments of the notion I am. From the unawakened point of view, the material body is where I am. Feelings are how I am. Perceptions are what I am. Volitional formations are why I am. And consciousness is whereby I am. And in this way, each aggregate offers its own contribution to enacting the reassuring illusion that I am. But the Buddha said, this isn't helpful, this establishment of I am, because it's built on shifting sand. It's built on continual change. And it has within it this quality of grasping identification. So looking closely, we see what this sense of I am comes from is the identification with a very dynamic process that there are a multitude of conditions coming together in a moment. And when we're really paying close attention, what we see is that even this sense of I is a really momentary, fleeting 
construction of mind that comes up when these different experiences arise. And so something happens and this boom, sense of self comes. Something, conditions change and boom, there's the sense of self is again. And things change and this happens really in a rapid fire change. It's really a complex interaction of impersonal events. There is a real usefulness to the inquiry into the impersonal, insubstantial, not-self nature of experience. The, The looking closely allows us to see that there's no solid I, me, or mine that's standing outside of all of this. When I was last in Burma practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya, he had a wonderful line in, he said, and in the end, anatta, or the understanding of anatta, will save your life. It's a really freeing realization where we put down the burden of I am, where we put down the weight of carrying around this construction and having to support the continuation of this construction that is in itself just suffering. This is another teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa. He says, to understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding is not the end. We now see that as the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachments, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, the final step is to experience that the mind is free, everything is free. The Pali texts use the phrase, throwing back. The Buddha said, at the end, we throw everything back. This means that we have been thieves all of our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I and mine. We have been stupid and have suffered for it. Now we have become wise and are able to give things up. At this last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine. It belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never again steal anything. To learn the secret of Dhamma is to know that we should be attached to nothing whatsoever and never again to become attached to anything. All is liberated. The case is closed. We are finished. So looking into anatta is a way of throwing it all back. It's really a way of seeing deeply into grasping. You know, the, this subtle, what, what is at times subtle, sense of I am. 
and really allowing things to be known just in their nature. In the understanding of anatta, there are a few, or a couple of things I'd like to point to, which I have covered uh, a little bit in the in speaking about the other two characteristics, because um, these other two characteristics really help us to understand anatta. So the first is the uh, that of impermanence that when we are paying close attention and seeing the rapid arising and passing of experience, this helps us to understand that what previously seemed very solid and could more readily be identified with as I am is impermanent. This is from Narada Tara. He says in his teachings on Anatta, the so-called being is like a flash of lightning that is resolved into a succession of sparks that follow upon one another with such rapidity that the human retina cannot perceive them separately. Nor can the uninstructed conceive of such succession of separate sparks. As the wheel of a cart rests on the ground at one point, so does the being live only for one thought moment. It is always in the present, and it is ever slipping into the irrevocable past. What we shall become is determined through this present thought moment. So, the scene of impermanence. You know, this succession of sparks in our experience that previously or when we don't pay close attention out of that scene there comes the sense of solidity I am And going back to a quote that I shared uh, when I spoke about impermanence from the Buddha, he says, is what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change fit to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No. It's not fit to be regarded as self. Another way that the Buddha spoke about to help us understand this not-self aspect is if there was this solid self, wouldn't our experience be controllable? But in fact, experiences are uncontrollable. Our experience is not amenable to our will. We cannot decide to have things be a certain way. And, you know, he says if, we, if there was a self, wouldn't we want to, you know, really care for ourselves? This is paraphrasing. Care for ourselves, not cause harm. And yet, 
you know, we can't have a body that doesn't decay. You know, we can't control that. Things are uncontrollable. I'd like to share a story that comes from the suttas. And uh, it's about a, a, a man who was a wanderer. And his name was Sakaka. And he had heard from one of the first of the first of the five disciples of the Buddha that the Buddha's teachings were that form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness were all impermanent and not self. Upon hearing this, he decided to go and visit the Buddha and set him straight. He believed in there being a self and had not yet made a study of the Buddha's teachings and had no practical knowledge of the Dhamma and at the same time had a very poor opinion of it. He felt that he himself was very much above it. So he organized for others to attend a debate where he boasted that he would whirl the Blessed One around in the matter of doctrines, just like a powerful man catching hold of a kid by his fleece, and he would whirl him round and round. So on his encounter with the Buddha, the Buddha first got Sakaka to admit that he believed that material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness were self. Then he backed him into a corner where he said, You said, form is myself. Could you exercise control over that self? Saying, let this self of mine be thus. Let this self be not thus. And at first, Sakaka would not answer. Only when the Buddha asked him for the third time and warned him that he better answer the question, because apparently if the Buddha asks you a question three times and you fail to answer it, your head will split into seven pieces. And it was also said that there was a celestial org that was visible only to the Buddha and Sakaka, and he was armed with a thunderbolt ready to split open Sakaka's head. So Sakaka was aware of this, and so on the third asking of this question, he answered, yes, or that there was no control, that um, there was no control over material form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. He was probably a little humbled. And then he was asked whether these forms were impermanent or permanent. And, of course, you know, they're impermanent, and then is what is um, that, that they were suffering. Then what is, this is from the Buddha, then what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change? Is it proper to regard this as this is mine, this I am, this is myself? And he responded, no, Lord. And then the Buddha went on to tell him how to undertake meditation practice so that he could be fully awakened, fully realized. And that after awakening, these five aggregates, uh, the physical and mental aggregates, are not mine, not I, and not myself.
So this is our exploration, to look into our experience and to see the nature of things, to explore and understand this teaching on anatta. And we do so with mindfulness. And this mindfulness is a close attention. And this doesn't mean we zoom into experience, hang on to experience. It's not a hard focus. But we do have to be fully engaged, a full participant in bringing allowing this attention to come to what our experience is. And then there comes a sense of of looking at experience in a neutral way, where we're not caught in a movement towards the experience or away from. We're not pulled into the liking or disliking. That when, when mindfulness is strong, this quality that Susan spoke about, equanimity comes in, and a real balance in the mind. And in one way, looking at is not the right word because that can sound like a distancing. And the mindfulness is completely connected. You know, one kind of way I have of expressing, thinking of, it is, it's like there's an experience, and in the knowing of that is so complete, so total, that in that moment, there's nowhere for I to creep in. It's just this careful attention, this awareness, without adding anything extra to anything coming in through the sense doors, but this full attention to that experience. And then when, when that attention is fully present, fully engaged, there is just no place for I. There's clearly times in practice when we experience, when there is a connection with experience the mind is non-reactive, things are fully known. And it's worth it to note that at this times there is also an ease in the mind, a peace in the mind. And then just for you know, experiential purposes, noticing when it's not like that, when there is a sense of This person who's having these experiences doesn't like these experiences, doesn't want these experiences. And what that feels like, is there still that same peace and ease in the mind? Now we've really got to see for ourselves how this identification is creating suffering. When the Buddha spoke about the five aggregates that comprise our experience, 
he offered us a framework of exploration that we could systematically look at our experience and then to see where the clinging comes in. So, you know, looking at the body, this body, the experience of the body. When we think of it as our body, when we think of it as our body aging, it can be painful. But really, looking to, into the experience of the body, noticing the difference between this body when we think of my knee as being in pain and when it's just experienced as sensations, heat, throbbing, tightness, changing, so changing, moving. When we look at the body, we see that it's made up of the elements, same elements that are in nature. We um, see that these elements are continually weaving themselves together in different configurations. The Buddha said, although people view the aggregate of material qualities as a living being, in reality, they are not self. They are merely physical phenomena. In the wise way of relating, this is not mine. This, is, this I am not. This is not myself. He likened the uh, body or the material realm to be like a lump of foam. And a lump of foam, if we investigate, doesn't have substance. No? And this body, when we start to really look at it, it doesn't have substance. So that, and then after the body, there's the feeling tone of experience where there's the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality. And that each experience arising in any of the sense doors has one of these qualities. And it happens on contact. And this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality is not an absolute truth. It's conditioned by past experiences. The Buddha likened feeling to be like a water bubble. And how much substance is there in a water bubble? How much substance is there in these feelings? And often we define ourselves by them. The next aggregate being that of perception. And this is where the mind has the capacity to recognize, name, label, and organize experience. There's a a natural way of organizing through association 
where things are being of a similar quality related to what's been known in the past become organized into a specific perception. You know, such as uh, human form. We see the shape of a human and we've seen people in the past and in this present moment that information leads us to label something as a human being. It's a way in which we pigeonhole experience into being something recognizable. And this is where the mind works very quickly. And it's, it's like it's cobbling together different pieces of information to come up with a perception. The perception can be very useful in our lives. It What becomes not useful is the clinging to these perceptions. A Tibetan teacher once said to one of his disciples, it was Tilopa saying to Naropa, you are not bound by perceiving, this perceiving is natural, but by clinging. So cut your clinging, Naropa. And this quality of perception, the Buddha likened to a shimmering mirage. And this makes sense in my mind because, you know, I have at times in my life seen that shimmering mirage when the landscape is really flat and it looks so real. And perception, you know, it looks, something looks so real. And then when we bring that close attention, we start to see the cobbling together, the, the mind moving really fast, this, this flickering. And again, it's insubstantial. The next is that of volitional formations. Volitional formations are mental activities that produce karma. They are that which brings about physical, vocal, or mental activities, or activities of body, speech, and mind. Volitional formations are um, that willing agent in the mind. It's the intention, that gathering together of energy that initiates action. This is often a place, there's a strong sense of I am. That, you know, I lift my arm. You know, that that the, and these intentions arise so quickly, but they are interesting to see because they are arising out of certain conditions, conditions change, uh, they disappear. Um, we, when we really look in our experience, we begin to see that, you know, boom, can just suddenly arise. And sometimes the intention is followed through on, sometimes it isn't. Uh, it's the urge to act is highly conditioned by ways that we responded to past stimulus. And it's likened to the weather, that rain, snow, sleet, hail, 
there's just conditions coming together in a certain way, and boom, something is formed, something happens. The Buddha likened volitional formations to being like the heartwood of a banana tree. I've never peeled away a banana tree, but I've come to understand there's not a lot of substance in the middle. He said of this, this is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. And then there's consciousness. Consciousness, which you know, is really, I think, one of the great mysteries in life and has been much speculation about consciousness. As the Buddha is speaking of it, it's that which knows. It's quality of bare cognition that is supported by feeling, perception, and volition. In the moment of hearing, consciousness brings together the object that is heard with the ear door, and it connects it through knowing. And it's likened to, you know, the spark from a match being struck across a surface. It ignites. This quality of consciousness is actually what defines us as sentient beings. And it arises in a moment where there's an object. So there's a sound, it hits the ear door, hearing consciousness arises. There's a sensation. This becomes felt, and it's known that feeling consciousness arises. There's a smell, an object that has some smell to it. It hits the nose door, and smelling consciousness arises. This consciousness arises and is dependent upon the object. There's a close relationship, and it's continually arising and passing. In a moment when hearing a sound disappears, is hearing consciousness still there? In a moment where the smell disappears, is smelling consciousness still there? One way the Buddha spoke about consciousness was like a monkey going through a forest and catching one bow, letting go, and catching another one. And in this way, consciousness is arising, disappearing, and arising again. He also likened consciousness to a magician's display. I I kind of liked that description of it. So all of these different aspects of experience 
I found it really helpful in a moment where in some way there's the recognition of identification, the sense of I am, just to look and see what is being identified with in that moment. Which of these five aggregates is the birthplace of I? What's being clung to? It can also be helpful when there is some experience that is really sticky to you know, know that experience, mindfulness being with that experience, and then have moments where one may, even though it's only intellectual, remember this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And sometimes going back and forth between the two, between a connection with the experience, this is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. The, the use of language that's pointing to the nature of experience and going back and forth, and seeing, seeing there what, why, or, you know, what's happening that this strong sense of I is there. Really interesting. And doing all of this investigation with a lightness of heart. This is a poem that comes out of a time uh, of my exploration of I. Uh, At the end of retreats is when I write poems. I don't actually sit on retreat and write them, just so you know that. (laughs) And this one's called Taking Life Lightly. Letting go of me and the story that I weave Who'd ever thought how fun it could be? For all of the places I've clutched and defended, for all of the tears I've cried from grief, sorrow, and loss, or the suffering of me. My fingers grew tired, they had clutched so hard, and now dared to relax and to loosen their grip. Moments of peace, tranquility, and joy, a lightness of heart in this empty, cognizant, ever-changing space. And then there I'd be again, the one that wants and needs. I'd shrink and recoil at the very sight of me. Each time that I'd come, at some point I'd pass, letting go again of the suffering of me. Now I keep arising, but there's a giggle inside for jumping at opportunities of a birthplace for me. Each time that they pop, It's no more, poor me, but laughter and humor as the mind becomes free. Letting go of this me, or just allowing life to be, without ever thinking that it belongs to me. So, anatta. The impersonal, insubstantial, 
not-self aspect of experience. The third of the three characteristics, the universal characteristics that are common to experience. Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature, and anatta, insubstantial, impersonal. These three characteristics being the gateway to liberation, being what we can look to in our own experience, or what we can come to understand. If we try to fabricate them, it won't work. But if we let the mind be steady, be present, we will see this. We will see these characteristics. And when they're deeply understood, they help to free the mind from this almost parasitic tendency to grasp, to cling, to take ownership of. We see these characteristics again and again. It's working, helping us to work at the very roots of grasping. To look closely in our own experience. I'd like to close with a teaching from the Buddha on impermanence, suffering, and not-self. This again, it's really been said tonight, but I want to repeat it because it's so important. <laughs> it's, and it's so helpful, and he just says it so well. So, you know, it's again going back to the five aggregates. Monks, form, and he said this for all of the aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness. Is it impermanent? Or saying, he says, it's impermanent. And what is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees thus, as it really is, with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana. One understands, destroyed is birth, the spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming back to any state of being. So let's just sit for a moment.
what is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus this is not mine this I am not this is not myself Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.